0: Good morning everybody. My name is Jacob and I'm one of the ministers here at the Tri-Valley Church of Christ. Let's pray the Jesus Creed as a church. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. That's the Jesus Creed. And uh, in January, we spent time there. That was the sermon series. We have these great Jesus Creed buttons that a lot of you guys are wearing. Everybody tap your Jesus Creed button. I like that sound. That's just fun. It's the fun thing to do. Um, the sermon series is over, but the Jesus Creed is still there. These are still the greatest commandments according to Jesus. And so we want to keep praying this. We want to keep living this out. We want to keep taking this command seriously. Uh, Just like Kendon Mackins was able to produce his DTO button 13 months out of the series, I would love for you guys, 13 months from now, to continue to be able to tap your Jesus Creed button and say, this is what's guiding my life. I'm trying to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I am loving my neighbor in ways that I didn't used to. Um, uh, But, as this comes to a close, we we transition over into a series, like I mentioned earlier, on death and dying, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second. So you guys spent time in the Jesus Creed, and you know it now. I put it up on the screen, but some of you know it by heart because you've been praying it so much, and you have your Jesus Creed button, and you take it with you. My guess was at the end of this series, somebody could come up to you and say, hey, uh, what is the Jesus Creed? You say, let me tell you, because I've been studying it, because I've been praying it, because I've been thinking about it. This probably wouldn't happen, but let's say your boss at work comes up to you and says, you're not going to be able to work here anymore unless you can tell me the Jesus Creed right now you'd be like, that's no problem. I can pass that test because I've been hanging out in the Jesus Creed. It's something that's on my heart. It's something that I know. Okay? It's probably true. You guys are prepped and you're ready to face the world that may ask you about the Jesus Creed. The same thing doesn't happen when we talk about death and dying. Normally, when we are forced to think about death or experience the death of somebody who's close to us, we are unprepared for it. We haven't been talking about it very much. We haven't been into the, the weeds of some of the specifics about what happens when you die. What does the Bible say about death and dying? What, is, what does Jesus' resurrection have to do with any of this? And a lot of times those kinds of tests uh, we would go, I don't know. And it's it's the perfectly wrong time to be asked something that you you may or may not have information about. Right? You're dealing with your own grief and you're making funeral preparations and plans, and it's just its the wrong time. So I've been thinking that what we need is a series on death and dying, so that when death comes, we know how to face death. Not with question marks, not with uncertainties, not just scrambling for different theologies and uh, understandings of, of what death is and what happens when somebody dies, but with a biblical understanding, with Christ and his resurrection leading the way. And ultimately, I want us all to be able to face death with confidence. I'm talking about our own death, that most of you will probably experience, as uh, my, my guess, uh, or, or the death of somebody that we love. And this, I realize as we get into this topic, that this is sensitive. This is something that impacts everybody in one way or another. There's uh, relatives that we've loved who are no longer with us. There are people who are closer to death than they were in the past, and they're kind of you know, looking over that hill and saying, okay, that's going to be me soon. Uh, and so I realize that this is, this is something that everybody's going to have some kind of personal connection to, some kind of emotional response to. So I'm going to try in this series, my pledge to you is to try to be uh, gentle as we talk about this, as I preach about this. I pledge to be faithful, as faithful as I can to a biblical understanding about death and dying. Uh, and I also pledge to be respectful, gentle, faithful, faithful and respectful to you guys, uh, my church, and uh, with this subject matter. With one exception, I plan on being intentionally disrespectful to death itself. And you'll see why as this unfolds. But in the 15th century, there was something that was called the Ars Moriendi, and you may or may not be familiar with this, but this, the church uh, of the 1400s would train its members in something called the Ars Moriendi, and that's Latin for the art of dying. And what it was is a series of um, hypothetical situations or conversations that might happen when the devil comes to take somebody's life. The Christian is instructed on how they are to respond to the one who comes to steal life and take what it thinks it is owed. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. So in the Ars Moriendi*, Satan comes to the person who is is about to die or whose loved one is about to die and say, you're frightened, aren't you? But then the faithful response of the dying person is, yes, I am frightened, but I'm trusting in my Savior who calms my fears. And I want to share some of these with you. But before we move on to more of these, I want to get you ready and I want you to participate in this with me. Because when I hear this, when Satan comes and he thinks that he's going to snatch away life and hope, and you're afraid Aren't you? The confident response of the Christian is, I'm trusting my Savior. When I hear that, it makes me go, oh snap! No, he didn't! Oh no! And it just kind of makes me get a little bit excited. Like, boom, that just happened. And I don't know what you do when you hear somebody just kind of lay a sick burn on somebody else. Maybe you're like, oh, whatever it is that you do. I want to encourage you to do that. If what I put on the screen in the Ars Moriendi, if you hear a sick burn, I want you to respond however you do. It might be, uh, uh, oh snap, like I demonstrated. Uh, You may be just kind of get up and get excited. It may be the traditional amen. But I want to hear from you guys. If something that is said here is faithful and a good, defiant, in-your-face death attitude, I want us to kind of get the vibe of that as we go through these together. Uh, one more suggestion of something that you might do. I said I was going to be respectful, right? Okay, But disrespectful to death, and that's what this is about. I was thinking about, what if there were a defiant, disrespectful hand gesture that we could all do uh, as a church together in the face of death? When we're talking about death, thinking it's got this power and coming to take away hope and life. And I was like, well, there's a few that come to mind that I'd probably get in trouble if I invited you to do um, but the, I came up with a middle-of-the-road one. There's this, this classic uh, fingers to your chin. Have you ever seen this? This uh, Same to you, buddy. Is that okay to do in church? Can I do that? Well, I'm going to invite you to do that. Um, everybody, don't turn to the person next to you, but just look up look up, straight ahead and kind of give one of these if you could. It's just... Uh, we know what that means, right? We don't have to put words to that. But that's what the R's Morandi is about. Satan comes up tries to flex his muscles, and the Christian, with hope in Christ, says, to you, buddy. So, here comes a few more of these. Satan says, oh, really? You're not frightened, so you think you're going to be rewarded by this Jesus, don't you? You who have no righteousness. And the dying person's faithful response is, Christ is my righteousness. Amen? Amen, yeah, to you, buddy. Oh, oh, well, Christ is your righteousness? You think Christ will welcome you to the company of Peter and Paul and the apostles, you who have sinned over and over again? No, I'm not going to the company of Peter and Paul. I'm going to the company of the thief on the cross who heard the promise, today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, dis in your face, buddy. Why are you so confident? You who have done nothing good, well, I have God's forgiveness and mercy Yeah, right. Well, uh, legions of demons are are salivating, and they're waiting for you. Yeah, and uh, I would be hopeless and fearful before that. If the Lord had not already crushed your tyranny, boom, goes the dynamite. All right, one more. Now you see Satan's on the ropes. Things are not going the way that he thought they would. Your God is unjust. What kind of God would bring someone like you into a kingdom of righteousness? God keeps promises. This is what justice is, and I will call on his mercy. Amen? Sound like a good, faithful response? When death came for Christians in the 1400s, they were basically taught to give death one of these. And I think that we need this today. We need this confident response that points to our hope and salvation being firmly rooted in Jesus Christ and I want us to get to the point in our faith where Christ, uh, faith in Jesus where it's not just that we don't worry about death but that we can actually approach the ends of our lives with confidence and even anticipation of being in the presence of the Lord the Apostle Paul expresses this fearless anticipation in Philippians writing from prison and uncertain about his future he says this I eagerly expect and I hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, well, that just means fruitful labor for me. But mm, what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So he's looking at at the possibility of death and saying, that's okay, because I'm going to be with Jesus. I know where I'm going. I know where my hope lies. But let's be clear here. Even though we can come to not fear death, and even though we can look toward our own death with anticipation, we should not say that death is a good thing, or that death is something that we should welcome. Death is is a bad thing. In the Ars Moriendi, as throughout the Bible, Satan is this personification of death. He's the accuser, the opposer, the tempter. He's that which opposes the living creation of the Creator God, who gives life. We need to remind ourselves at the beginning of this study that God loves his creation. When he created, he declared that it was good. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates, and then he interacts with his creation in a personal, hands-on kind of way. And he commissions human beings to bear his image in this world, to be like him, and to perpetuate his love and care. That was our commission. That's why we were created. But what happened? Things went wrong. The first humans, and us as well, they tried to become their own gods. And so sin and death enter the world. Death sometimes can be something that is better than the alternative in the case of somebody who is suffering. Sometimes when someone dies who is in terrible pain, we say, well, this is a good thing. We welcome death in those cases because it seems better than the only available alternative. But even in those cases, we need to recognize that death is only the lesser of two evils. If the choice was between death and a full and healthy life, I don't think we would be as friendly to death as we sometimes are. So we need to remind ourselves, death is the force that tries to undo God's good creation. Death's goal is to steal and snuff out life in all of its earthly forms, not just to make our bodies stop moving and breathing and working at the end of our 80 years or however long. But throughout our lives, death is creeping, death is trying to undo the things that God has done, that God intends to do. Death is the anti-creator. Death is the bully who comes and knocks over your sandcastle that you've spent so much time working on. And Paul also recognized the destructive power of death in the world. Here's Paul in Romans chapter 7. He says, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? We hear this and we think, well, we just heard Paul talking with confidence about approaching death. I'm going to be with Christ. It is is fine. But here there's this, this hopelessness. What am I going to do? Death is constantly at work. How can I escape from it? But I think you guys know the answer. And you know where he's going to go with this. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul's hope was in Jesus and only in Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus is one of these. To death. And Paul knew that. And Paul held on to that truth. If death is the anti-life, resurrection is the anti-death. Let's talk a little bit about the resurrection. The resurrection is a key New Testament theme, but it's something that often gets overlooked or it's de-emphasized in the Christian understanding of death and dying. N.T. Wright comments on what a large New Testament theme the resurrection is when he says, Easter is our greatest festival. If you take away Christmas, you lose a couple chapters in Matthew and Luke. If you take away Easter, you lose a majority of the New Testament. But growing up, I didn't hear much about the resurrection. In the church that I grew up in, they talked a lot about the cross, uh, but not really the resurrection and what it was and why it was significant. Um, We recognize the importance of the sacrifice of Jesus on Good Friday, but the thing that we celebrate is Easter Sunday. That's the, the resurrection celebration. If Jesus had died and stayed dead, then that would have just been another victory for death, another tally mark the work that death does. But it is because after Jesus' death, he walked out of the tomb on Sunday morning and said, not today, Satan, because of that, that we have hope of our own victory over death. This is where we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have a Bible... You should open it up to 1 Corinthians 15. That's where we're going to be spending most of our time in, in most of the chapter. I'll put it up here on the screen, too, so you can read along. But it's good to have it in front of you. And I'm going to skip over some parts that you may want to read through later. First Corinthians is in the New Testament. After you get past the Matthew, Mark, and Luke Gospels, you get Acts, Romans, and then Corinthians is right there waiting for you. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about not just the resurrection and that this is what happened to Jesus, but why this is significant for believers, and how our resurrection is connected to the resurrection of Jesus. So he begins chapter 15 with a passage, like a gospel summary, and reminding this church that he founded and then then left. He's away from them, and he's writing to them, responding to some of their questions or things that he's heard about. Uh, He responds with this summary of the gospel. Part of this, Jim read for us earlier, so this will sound familiar to you. Paul says, Now, my brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you the one which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. Uh, here he's kind of just saying, the gospel hasn't changed. What I preach to you is the same gospel. You guys might be hearing some other things, but this is what happened with Jesus. And I could go into this more in more depth, but the cool thing about the New Testament letters you see is they name names, like Cephas and the Twelve. They're writing this because he's saying, you can go ask these people. Some of these folks are still alive, and you can go talk to them, and they'll tell you that they saw Jesus resurrected in bodily form. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep here, and we'll run into this again later. This is a uh, biblical euphemism for death. Someone who has fallen asleep, somebody who's died. Then Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace, to me, was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God was that was in me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. I love how how Paul just kind of runs on these little rabbit trails. It's like, oh yeah, well it's me. and Well it's not really me, but it's Christ working in me. It's the grace of God. You know what I'm saying. Whether it's them or me, this is, now back to the main idea. He does this all the time in his letters. And I appreciate that because I tend to talk and think like that myself. Alright, moving on. Now he gets to the part about the resurrection. Verse 12. But, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, in fact, if the dead are not raised, like some of you are saying. But if the dead are not raised, then Christ hasn't been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep, those who've died, in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people We are, of all people, to be most pitied. The resurrection is pretty important. He's putting this in a negative way. Well, if there's no resurrection, then there's no faith, then there's no church, then there's no hope, then Jesus isn't raised, and we're all still in our sins. And the thing that saved us, the thing that we were banking on, saving, giving us our salvation through Christ, none of that's true, if there's no resurrection from the dead. He is making this point that there is a resurrection, and it is central, it is significant. Now, we should say at this point that the first century Jewish understanding of the resurrection is just that. The resurrection. Not my resurrection, or several resurrections happening each day, or whenever somebody dies, there's this resurrection. It is the resurrection. It's an event that happens at one particular time. This is talked about in other places in the scriptures. If you go to John 11, when Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus, uh, he's talking with, with Mary, and she's, she's sad, and he's saying, oh, you know, we'll see, I know that we'll see my brother again, and Jesus is like, well, yeah, Lazarus will, he'll be with us again, and she's like, I know, I know, you're talking about the resurrection. So she has this familiar understanding of what the resurrection is, and then Jesus goes on to say, well, I am the resurrection, which is awesome, but we don't have time to talk about that now. In Mark 12, the Sadducees come to Jesus with this sparring match and they say, they, they don't believe in the resurrection, but uh, the Pharisees do and, and Jesus does and they say, okay, well, let's talk about the resurrection. Let's say a woman has a husband and he dies and then she marries a brother and then he dies and she marries the other brother and he dies. He's married all these brothers. Whose husband or whose wife is she going to be at the resurrection? So they have this familiarity with the concept of the resurrection even though they don't believe in this. And I hear about this, and I think, okay, so there's this concept of people die, and they, they, they are asleep. And then there's going to be the resurrection. I think about people that I know, people that I love, who have fallen asleep. People in my life who have died. My dad died in 1988, and my last two grandparents, his mom and dad, they both died in 2015. So my natural question is going to be, where are they? What's happening with them right now? And I don't mean where are their bones or where are their ashes, because I know where those are. But where are they? My grandpa, within just a few years of, of, of his death, he came to me. We were walking on a beach one time. It was really scenic, a memorable moments. It was just the two of us on the stretch of beach. And he says, Jacob, uh, I just have some questions about death and what's going to happen with me. He was a Christian. He believed in Jesus. It's actually a really cool story that I'll tell you some other time. He became a Christian in his 70s after keeping Jesus at arm's length for most of his life. just Running into the arms of God in his 70s. Just amazing story. So he told me on the beach, he's like, you know, I I believe in Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus now. I I believe that God's going to take care of me. But I'm getting closer to that time. And I've got questions about, you know, what happens? Like the moment that I die close my eyes, open my eyes. What am I going to see? Am I going to see Jesus? Am I going to be in heaven? Am I going to see my loved ones? What's that going to be like? And I'm on the beach with my grandpa, and I'm thinking, why are you asking me this? <laughs> I don't know. I've never, that's, I don't have that experience, uh, and I don't probably think about it as much as you do. I feel like I'm farther away. Um, he probably asked me because he knew that I'd done some Bible training, and he was minister to church. Surely, Jacob will have all the answers. Give me the play-by-play. What's that going to be like, grandson? And I was like, I don't know. I don't got a good answer for you. And I kind of let him down that day. <laughs> um, but, what I would have said, if you'd give me a little time, Paul refers to them as sleeping. This is, uh, this is something that you see throughout the New Testament. You know, people who die are sleeping. And it's not the same as the way that we sleep now. I think there's going to be some key differences. In the pa- passage that we looked at from Philippians 1, where Paul says, I can't decide. Do I want to go? His death? And then be with Christ, which is going to be better. I can't imagine that that's, if this sleep was an unconscious thing, like the way that we sleep. You go to bed, you set your alarm, eight hours go by in a blink, and suddenly you're awake, and it's the next day. This seems to be some kind of conscious experience of resting in the presence of Jesus that Paul was looking forward to. This is the sleep that maybe my dad and my grandma and grandpa are experiencing right now. In Luke chapter 23, the thief on the cross. He's got two thieves on either side of him. One is mocking him with the rest of the crowds, and the other one says, remember me when you go into your kingdom, Jesus. And Jesus turns to him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. And then in John 14, you get kind of a glimpse of this when Jesus is talking to his disciples, this famous passage where he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Uh, in my father's house there are, what? Many m- rooms or many mansions. A lot of times we hear that and we think, okay, that's, that's the end. He's describing this great guest room that where we're going to spend all of eternity. Uh, but maybe he's not. Maybe he's talking about something a little bit different. Maybe he's talking more about this temporary sleep that comes before the resurrection. The Greek word that's used here when Jesus talks about many rooms or many mansions or resting places, it's the Greek word monai And the way that this word is used outside of this passage, more often than not, has to do with a temporary place, kind of like an inn or uh, you know, just like a motel that you stay for the night. It's a place where you kind of rest and you get refreshed, and then you move on to something else. This is the word that Jesus uses here. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And a lot of times we think, great, I want to be there. But we forget that maybe there's more that comes after that. Uh, there's a, a final destination that is yet to be revealed, and this is what most people think about: is this first understanding, like that's my home, that's going to be my permanent address in heaven with Jesus. Um, this concept of when you die, you go to heaven, and that's it. And I, that's one way of putting it, right? We say. You, go to sleep, or he's with Jesus, or you'll be with me in paradise, or so we talk about going to heaven, and that's all fine uh, as, if, as a way to understand it. And if, again, we're talking about something that is hard to understand and that all of us have not personally experienced. But what we need to remember is that what Paul is describing here in 1 Corinthians is part two of a two-stage process. Part one is that sleep, or that with Jesus experience, and stage two is the resurrection. The resurrection from the dead. And I realized, and maybe by some of the looks on your faces, I can tell that this might be information that uh, we haven't spent a lot of time in. This may be a clarification that make you go, wait, what? I have so many follow-up questions I would love to ask at this point. Um, I realize that. This concept is not like a, the story of my grandpa on the beach. He's like, what happens then? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't talk about this very often. I feel like I have a better understanding of it now, and that's one of the reasons for this series, too. Um, But with that in mind, and with the the need for answering and asking questions, we've dedicated the the next two Sundays of our 9 a.m. class that meets in here on Sundays. Uh, We're going to be watching some videos with the scholar N.T. Wright, and answering and asking some of these questions together. So if you're like, uh, I need more than just that about the resurrection, then please come and join us at 9 a.m. and It may answer some questions, it may create more questions, but it's a good conversation to be a part of, and I wanted to let you guys know about that. Okay, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Next, Paul shows that it is crucial that Jesus is the Messiah, and that with his resurrection, he basically lit the fuse and kick-started the resurrection. Listen to what he says here, starting in verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Who's he talking about? For as in Adam, all die. Oh, I see. So in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in turn. Christ, the firstfruits. And then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until his, the last enemy to be destroyed Oop, I skipped the thing. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet, quoting a psalm there. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. And when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Kind of confusing. Let's back up a little bit. He talks about... The first fruits. He says Jesus in his resurrection is the first fruits. That's an idea that we may think we understand, but we also don't interact with very much. I know what first means, first street, house, right? Uh, I know what fruits are, and I can get the idea of like a first fruits in a harvest, but something that we're a little bit farther removed from is this concept that if you were growing something, your field, your, your grain, or the, the fruits that you produced, the first fruits of the crop, you would take and you would sacrifice them. You would burn them. You would give them as an offering to God, and you would say, I am trusting that just as these fruits came through, the rest of the harvest is going to come through. It's a a sign of trust that you do uh, before God, a sacrifice that you make. So when we think about this and we say, okay, Jesus is the first fruits. how is Jesus kind of like that sacrifice that somebody makes? God did this, and he's going to do the rest, too. For Paul, Jesus' resurrection is like that. It's the first yield of a crop season that will include believers as well. Jesus is alive, and he is reigning at the right hand of God. Notice this next thing, too. He says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is the thing that came and tried to kill Jesus. But what Paul is declaring is death failed. Jesus did not stay in the tomb. Jesus rose again on the third day. Jesus will have the ultimate victory over death. Death will be destroyed. And that should be good news for some of us who have had loved ones die. And we say, hey, we would like to see death destroyed, but it doesn't seem to have happened just yet. What's the deal there? Well, that is coming. Jesus in his resurrection is the first fruits. The rest of the resurrection that started with Jesus will proceed as scheduled. And we, if we believe that, can confidently say Jesus has overcome and the grave is overwhelmed. The victory is won and he has risen from the dead. And then Paul puts it like this when we fast forward down to 1 Corinthians, uh, starting in verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where o oh death is your victory where o oh death is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god exclamation point thanks be to god he gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ the resurrection of jesus is one big this in the face of death this is what paul is saying notice christ is raised first that's the easter event And then in verse 23, he says, And then those who belong to him will be raised as well. Those who belong to Christ. That includes Paul. That includes the Corinthian Christians. That includes Christians today. I believe that includes me. I am going to be a part of that resurrection. I believe that when I die and I lie down, that I will rest in the presence of Jesus. I believe that at the time of the resurrection, I will rise just like Jesus rose from his grave. And I will rise to a new life as a new creation unlike anything that I've experienced before. And I believe this because I belong to Christ. On May 6, 1994, my youth minister, Jeff Groh, took me into a pool of water, and he asked me two questions. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? I said, yes. I do. Are you willing to make him the Lord of your life and follow him and belong to him? And I said, yes, I am. And then he laid me down into a pool of water, kind of like the one that we have here. And I died to sin. I died to myself. And then Jeff Groh lifted me up out of the water, and I was dead to sin, and I was alive to God in Christ Jesus. And since that day, I have belonged to Jesus. Amen. Maybe some of you have had that same experience. Hank knows what I'm talking about. Look at him. His hair is still wet. It seems like a good time to say if you haven't had that experience, if you don't know whether or not you belong to Christ, if you're not sure about where you're going when you die, here's the invitation. Say yes to Jesus in baptism. There's a reason that we keep a big pool of water here ready at a moment's notice. There's some churches that don't. Uh, but we always have. and as, far as, I'm, as long as I'm around, we always will. Say yes to Jesus if you believe that he's the Son of God. If you want to belong to Christ, we can do that right now. I've said this before. Nothing stops a sermon in its tracks like somebody saying, I want to get baptized right now. I will take whatever else I have written and I will disregard it. And we'll eat cookies and celebrate together. Um, but if that's where you're at, uh, then come and talk to me. Just come up and say, I want to belong to Jesus, and we'll take care of the rest. Paul ends 1 Corinthians. Nobody? Right? Okay. Quick check. Just to. I don't want to go on if I don't have to. Okay. Paul ends 1 Corinthians 15 with this. Kind of like, now what? What do we do next? Statement. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So there's work to be done. Let's let's do something with this hope, this resurrection faith that we have in Jesus. Notice here, Paul does not say, your future is secure, so just take it easy. He says to Christians, your future is secure, so get to work. The work that you do now matters and it will continue to matter. Uh, another important reason for this series, why it's important to talk about death and, and resurrection, is because I believe that what you think happens then will impact what you do with your life now. You probably heard the phrase, beginning with the end in mind, before. It's just this simple idea that you, know, you can do a lot of things, but if you don't know where you're, you're going or what your goal is, then you might miss some steps along the way, or you might get off track. Um, our daughter Molly, she's eight years old, and a few days ago she said, I wanna go to Hawaii. I wanna take the whole family to Hawaii, and I'll pay for it. And we said, okay, that's, that's a good plan, let's do that. She said, how much does it cost to take our whole family to Hawaii? Like, I don't I mean, we might be able to get everybody there for $6,000. She said, hmm, okay. Uh, and she, she thought back to last summer when she did a lemonade stand, and she made, this is true, she made $60 in like two hours selling lemonade uh, downtown. You know, cute kid and expensive lemonade is a good combination. (laughs) She's like, okay, 60, if you can see a calculator, so 6,000 divided by 60. All I got to do is do 100 days of a lemonade stand, and then we've got our Hawaii trip. And we said, yeah, that sounds like a good plan. So if you see Molly selling lemonade, please please buy her lemonade so that my family can go to Hawaii. beginning with the end in mind. So if what you think happens to you when you die impacts what you do with your faith, then it's important for us to talk about get an idea of where we're going and how we're going to get there. If you believe that nothing happens to people after they die, then what is that going to do? How is that going to impact your, your 80 or so years of life on earth? If you believe the Gnostic view that the earth and the bodies that God has created for us, are corrupt beyond repair and that God is just going to throw it all away in the end and our disembodied souls are going to float up into a, a magical place with lots of ice cream and trampolines, then how is that going to influence your life now? How is it going to determine whether or not you love your neighbor as yourself or how you treat your body or how you treat God's creation, what Paul calls the temple of the Holy Spirit, God's dwelling place? And we're going to talk more about that next week. I just threw that one out there, but stand by for more on that. If you believe that God's creation is good, the way that we said in Genesis, he declared his creation to be good. And if you believe that he plans to restore his whole creation, just like he did with Jesus, and just like we expect him to do with us when we experience the resurrection, how is that going to steer and influence your life? I'll put it this way. If you plan on being in Christ then, then what does it look like to be in Christ now? It's a good question for us to ask ourselves. And we'll continue asking this as the series goes on. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our leader, the one we want to stand behind when death comes to try to claim us. We thank you that we can cling to him the way that Leah clings to my leg when she's scared Thank you that we can belong to Jesus Christ. Thank you for having our back. Thank you for the confident hope that we have. We look forward to being with you. And we often don't know what that looks like. Uh, But we trust in you. We thank you for this powerful word that Paul wrote that we can listen in on, this conversation that gives us an understanding of, of what he believed and what he taught and what it looks like to hope and trust in Jesus. And we hear him say, it's not about getting what you need and then waiting. It's not about sitting still. It's about doing something. It's about being employed in your service, being your servants for the kingdom that you are building, that you built with Jesus. It is continuing to happen all around us. Let us be a part of that, Lord. Open up our minds and give us a greater understanding than we sometimes have. I pray for me as as a spokesperson, as a preacher, throughout this series. I pray that the things that I say will be faithful to who you are, that will give us a greater understanding of what discipleship in Christ looks like. And Lord God, we thank you for the loved ones who we know who have impacted our lives, who have fallen asleep. We entrust them into your care. And we say be faithful the way that you are. We love you and we pray this prayer in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand up and I'm going to give you some marching orders. If you belong to Christ, then this is what you do. This is what Paul is telling us. This is from Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means! We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified, crucified, with him, so the body ruled by sin may be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. I'll say that again and give you a chance to respond. Death no longer has mastery over him. Mm. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Praise God. Let's worship together.